0: I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26 with me. It's where we'll find ourselves this morning. So I studied this, my mind went to a mission story, a famous mission story. Uh, but anytime I, I think about the betrayal of Judas, or the, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, I should say, my mind goes back to a story, and you might have heard it before, but in 1962, Don and Carol Richardson went to work with the uh, Sawi people of New Guinea, and they ended up telling their story in a book called The Peace Child, and the story is um, kind of this unforgettable story of living among headhunting cannibals who valued treachery through fattening up victims with friendship before slaughtering them. So this is who they went to go and share the gospel with, and uh, As you might imagine, this would be very hard to share the gospel with this kind of people. One of the reasons is because treachery was such a great value among this culture that one day, as Don Richardson was sharing with them um, the story of Judas betraying Jesus, the, the men of the village started laughing. And he was like, what about this story makes you laugh? And then he found out that they thought that Judas was the hero of the story. He had pulled a fast one over on Jesus, and he had won the day with his treachery. And you think, how in the world are these people ever going to come to know Jesus? They're they're celebrating Judas. Um, It was a tenuous friendship, of course, if you're with a culture that tends to fatten up friends in order to eat them. Um, But they had come with Western tools and medicine that these people found very valuable. And so they had uh, some level of safety there only from the fact that they had something to provide. But as you might imagine, with people who valued treachery, uh, there were not many times of peace among them. And oftentimes different villages among the tribe would be at war with each other. And during one particularly bloody episode of fighting... The Richardsons had had enough. They said, well, this is crazy, we're not dealing with this. If the, if the violence doesn't stop, we're, we're leaving. We're taking our tools with us, we're taking our medicine with us. And in response to this, the people did something very surprising. It actually opened up the door for the gospel among the Asawi people. You see, they did have a means to make peace, and this was called the peace child. And what would happen is they'd take a child from one village, send that child to go live and be adopted by the other village, And as long as the child was alive, there would be peace. And even though the the culture valued treachery and betrayal, to betray the peace child was the unforgivable sin. All of a sudden, the Richardsons had the key to sharing the gospel with these people. God was at war with us because of our sin, but in order to make peace, he sent his peace child, his son, to live in our village and Judas's betrayal wasn't something to celebrate. He had betrayed the peace child. And suddenly they realized the gravity of what had happened. They realized their need for Jesus. And, and so the story goes on. But the reason my mind comes to that is because I think it's hard for us to comprehend how could any people group look at a story like Judas betraying Jesus and think he's the hero. Like that's so hard for us to comprehend, like how that would come about. And yet... As I studied our passage today, I realized just as the Sawi people were blind to the treachery of Judas, the reality is that we are blind to our own treachery and our own fallenness. And the story of Judas' betrayal, he's not the only person who falls short there. Actually, well, we're going to see everybody fall short. Uh, Matthew 26 as a transition now. We've been in the Olivet discourse, and now we transition back into the narrative and to the story of Jesus' life, and we enter into what we call the passion, and we see here, I believe, the passion sets a foundation for the gospel. It demonstrates to us whose work salvation is, and Matthew is going to establish this, I think, through several different contrasts, and I want to walk through the story today looking at these contrasts. Uh, so, what I want to do is I want to invite us, uh, you to pray with me, and let's ask God for his help, and then we're going to step right into the text, and we're going to look at Matthew 26, 1 through 46, the, the whole thing this morning. So, we have a lot ahead of us, let's go ahead and pray and get started. Uh, God, we are so thankful for the opportunity this morning to open your word. Uh, God, we need We need your word, we need your revelation, because the reality of it is, if I'm left to my own devices, if I'm left to my own thoughts and presuppositions, I quickly believe uh, what's false is truth. I believe false things about you, I believe false things about myself, I believe false things about reality. And the, the truth of it is, as I live in a culture, we all live in a culture that, that tries to pull us away from your truth. And so we need to come to your word and, and be reminded once again of who you are, who we are, what it means to actually have a relationship with you. And so God, this morning as we look at this, this passage that so clearly lays out the foundation of the gospel, I would pray that you would give us hearts that are teachable. Open our ears and eyes to see truth about you and about us. And God, we don't come to this process through our own capabilities, but we need your help. So give us your help. This is our prayer. We pray this through the Spirit. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's go ahead and jump in. What we're going to see today, and you'll find your study sheet helpful, I trust, is today is the fifth major transition in the Gospel of Matthew. He uses this phrase five times when Jesus had finished all these sayings. He uses that phrase to transition from some major teaching section back into the narrative. So here we find ourselves in the narrative. As I said, this narrative uh, enters us into the passion. This is Jesus' final uh, few days as he enters into being arrested and betrayed and beaten and crucified. And I want to set up the scene here by reading just the first five verses. So look at your Bibles with me, Matthew 26, 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So here Jesus is once again proclaiming he's going to die. And when is he going to die? At Passover. Now, you might recall a number of weeks ago before the Olivet Discourse, when we were still in the narrative, that Jesus had cleansed the temple, he had been approached by the religious rulers, and they were finally done with him. They were fed up. They're going to find a way to get this guy. And now we transition here in verse 3. We get a little behind-the-scenes view of what these religious rulers are doing. So the scene shifts really quick. And we see this. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now you see a problem here. Jesus has just predicted I'm going to die at the Passover. The priests are saying, you know what, let's hold off and not get this guy during the Passover. They were worried about the people, and they had good reason to be. Jerusalem's population would swell about five times its normal size during the Passover as people came to celebrate. People would be in a religious fervor, a nationalistic fervor, and to go after and arrest the guy that many of them saw to be the Messiah would just be a recipe for disaster. And so they say, we're going to hold off. And so there's a problem here. The people who are supposed to arrest and crucify Jesus are deciding not to do it during Passover. So what's, what's going to happen? Is Jesus right? Is his prediction right? Right? Does he know what's going on? Well, let's take a look. We come into the rest of the passage here, and this is where we start seeing contrasts. And I, I think this lays such a clear foundation. The first contrast we see is with this some unnamed woman. Look at verse 6. It says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, in the gospel, sometimes there are some differences between how the different gospel writers relate stories And as we look at this story in other Gospels, especially John's, we see a little bit difference in terms of the order of events. We also see that John tells us who this unnamed woman is. This is Mary, probably the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Um, But here, Matthew's uh, intention here is he's arranging this thematically. And and he wants to build a contrast, so he leaves her unnamed. And do you see the contrast here? Look at verse 3 with me again. Notice that we have the high priest whose name is Caiaphas, okay? Who's the high priest? The high priest is the most important man in Israel, really. He was the religious leader of the Israelites. He was the one who was supposed to, of anybody, recognize who the Messiah is and prepare the people for the Messiah. What's this man doing instead? He's plotting Jesus' death. And you see the contrast. Here we have the most important man. Name is Caiaphas. Should be preparing the way for the Messiah. And so he's plotting his death. Okay, over here now we have an unnamed woman. Now you might recall if you were here for Easter Sunday, Pastor Jay Sermey talked a little bit about where women fell in the order of things in Jesus' day. Women didn't have a lot of importance in society. In fact, in a judicial setting, uh, women's testimonies had no value. So you have somebody who's on the lower end of society, not even named. What is she doing? She's doing this amazing act of costly love, properly recognizing the Messiah, and doing exactly what she should be doing. Do you see the contrast here? This important man, Caiaphas, has a name, not doing what he should be doing. By all the world standards, super great person. And here, over here, this unnamed woman, by world standards, Nobody of any importance doing exactly what the high priest should have been doing. There's a contrast that we see here. And what we see is really the greatness in the kingdom versus the greatness in the world are two very different things. So so Matthew intentionally contrasts the greatest man in Israel with the nameless woman. And whereas the top of society is plotting Jesus' death, the lowest of society demonstrates costly love. And I, I love what Jesus does here because... He prophesies over her, and he says, in verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she she has done will be told in memory of her. And sure enough, Jesus' prophecy has come true, hasn't it? Think about how many languages has the Bible been translated into. Well, the whole scriptures has been translated into about 870 languages. But the New Testament has been translated into several thousand more. And single books of the Bible, usually when they translate just a book of the Bible in a the language, they start with a gospel. So to date, about thirty or 3,300 languages have been, had this story translated into them. This woman's testimony has gone into the world. In fact, the very fact that we're talking about her today is part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's kind of cool, huh? So here Jesus looks at her, and I, what I want us to see is that This contrast shows that worth in the kingdom comes from Jesus, not social standing. How did this woman know to do this? She was responding to the love that Jesus had already shown her. Where does she get her value? Can she look at her worldly value and say, I'm a great person because of who I am in the world? Well, no, her value comes from Jesus. And so we're seeing that our social standing doesn't give us value. The value in the kingdom is very different. So already we're getting this preview of, of of the foundation of the gospel, it has something to do with Jesus and not us. And we're going to see this developed a little bit as we continue looking at this contrast. Let's look at the next contrast. The act of anointing Jesus also becomes the catalyst for Jesus' betrayal. As Jesus reprimands the disciples, this is going to move one of them to betray him. Look at verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And now we got some resolution to that problem from before. The religious leaders who decided not to touch Jesus until after the Passover are now presented with an opportunity they can't pass up we have the opportunity to go arrest Jesus in private in the darkness of night when none of the crowds will know what's happening. You know, here we start to see the contrast of God's plan versus my plan. God's plan versus the plan of people. And one of the things we see is that God is always in control. Even though the religious leaders put their plans on hold until after the Passover, Jesus will be betrayed on schedule. Just as he predicted. Now, why did Judas betray Jesus? This is something that Scripture doesn't speak very clearly on. And there's been a lot of uh, answers given to this. Some people say, well, Judas was greedy. He loved money. And certainly, as we look at the Gospels, uh, he, was, he, he, he did have an issue with money. He was the money keeper. He tended to pilfer some money. Um, but did he betray Jesus for those 30 pieces of silver? I have a hard time seeing that because really the 30 pieces of silver wasn't a big amount of money in that day. It was actually the amount that you would pay if your ox gored a slave. And it's not a huge like, man, I'm rich and I can retire now sort of sum of money. Other people have posited maybe Judas betrayed Jesus because he believed he was the Messiah, but he wanted to force his hand to action. And I have some trouble with that one too, only because it minimizes... What Judas did almost seems like he was well-intentioned, just misinformed. And I think that when we look at Judas and how he's presented in the Scripture, his betrayal was malicious in nature, not ill-intentioned. Now, personally, and this is Tyler speaking, okay, I believe it was disillusionment and spite. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that Judas had signed up for. See, the Messiah wasn't just a spiritual savior, he was a political savior. He was supposed to deliver Israel from the Roman occupation. He was supposed to usher in an era of unprecedented peace and prosperity. And here's Judas, a lover of money, thinking, you know what? If I give three years of my life to this guy, it's going to position me really well when he's king. Wouldn't you think so? You're a part of the posse. This guy's going to be king. It's like the days of Solomon, Like, it's good to be with the king. And here Judas is thinking, I'm going to live the easy life. And he's seeing this go away. Here's this Messiah he's been following for three years. And, oh my goodness, he keeps talking about his death. And he just made this incredible dumb waste of raw resources. He let this lady pour this perfume on him, which... Other scriptures tell us that it was worth about a year's wage. From a political standpoint, he's probably thinking, I would be a better policymaker than this guy. Look at how he's wasting money and resources. Now, I think that Judas was disillusioned. I believe he looked at the three years he had given to Jesus and thought, what a waste. And I think he was done with Jesus. He was fed up with him. Disillusion disillusioned, and a disillusioned person's dangerous. And the lover of money agrees to betray Jesus for an insignificant amount of money. 30 silver coins, I, I don't care, I just want to get rid of him. Again, that's my opinion. But I think there's something more going on here. His hopes, his dreams are, are not coming to fruition now, we see this kind of play out as Matthew picks up the, the rest of the scene here as the disciples prepare the Passover meal. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now one thing I've always wondered about when reading this is, I've always wondered, like, it seems really obvious that Judas is the betrayer. Why didn't they just jump on him at that point? But uh, many scholars, including D.A. Carson, point out that the language used here is less obvious than than what we might think it is. When Jesus talks about those, the one who dips his hand in the bowl, well, community eating, they're all dipping their hands in the bowl. So Jesus is just saying, it's one of you guys who's closest to me who's been eating this meal. And even as Judas asks, is it I, and, and Jesus affirms this, he confirms it, D.A. Carson says, Uh, Jesus' affirmative is just enough to give Judas a jolt without removing all ambiguity from the ears of the other disciples. In other words, the only person in the room that heard Jesus' confirmation as a confirmation was Judas, but it's enough for him to follow through with his wicked plan. You know, what we see here in this contrast is we see the danger of living for our plans instead of God's plan. We have several contrasts here. We have the plan of the, the religious rulers. We have Judas's plan, and they're all living for what their will is, not God's will. In contrast, the only person living for the, God's plan, for God's will, is Jesus. He's fully submitted to that. And what we see here is that Judas thinks he knows best, but following his own plan has disastrous results. You know, that's true for us too. I think it's a very dangerous thing, especially in popular Christianity. I hear a lot of this like, just follow what's on your heart and ask God to, you know, give you the dreams of your heart. And you know, what Scripture points us to is not to say, here's my plan, God, would you get on board with it? It's, God, what's your plan? Help me to get on board with it. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating here being in the Father's will. Judas, on the other hand, is on board with his own plan. It doesn't work out too well. As the Passover meal continues, we see the third contrast develop. We see Jesus' commitment versus the commitment of men. His commitment versus my commitment. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said... Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Passover was a very interesting event, the celebration of the Passover meal. And to really grasp what Jesus is getting at here we have to have some background in uh, what it's celebrating. Uh, Passover was named after uh, the final plague as God was delivering the children of Israel from Egypt. God was going to send an angel who was going to kill the firstborn of every house. And this angel, the only way you could escape this uh, fate was by painting the blood of a lamb above your doorpost. The blood was there, the angel would pass over. And so in the meal that they were intent, supposed to participate in year after year, the, the remembering how the salvation came about was uh, done through all sorts of symbolism that was explained in the meal. I don't know if you've ever participated in a Passover Seder before, but there is so much rich symbolism going on there. And in, the, in that meal, there's, there's several different foods that play a role. Central to it would be the unleavened bread bitter herbs, and the Passover offering, which would be uh, typically a lamb. Um, and then there's four cups of wine. And in the meal, the father plays the role of the narrator and, and kind of explains all the symbolism here. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's explaining the symbolism of the components. And there's such rich symbolism. For instance, the unleavened bread, you have three pieces of matzah wrapped up uh, on the table. And for some reason, these three pieces of bread are called a Unity. Modern Judaism has no answer for why these are called a unity. But we might wonder, hmm, three in one, unity. Three parts, one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hmm, wonder. In the meal, you take the middle piece, the second piece, and you break it. Uh, That broken piece is wrapped up in a cloth. It's hidden away. Um, But the Father, as he breaks the bread would typically say this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Now, Jesus, what he's doing, he's now pointing to the Passover elements and he says that all these things point to him. Instead of saying this is the the bread of affliction that our fathers ate, now he says, this is my body. This is shocking, you know, this kind of wakes up the disciples, I imagine, who've probably been through several Passover meals and know the whole plan. They know the script, and Jesus is now deviating. And as sin says, he's saying, this is my body. Rather than saying, this is the bread of our affliction, he's saying, this is the bread of my affliction. This, this points to me. So he lifts up the cup. And the Seder meal, the cup that he lifts up and says, this is my blood, would be the, the third cup, the cup of redemption. With it, the Israelites remembered the redemption of Israel from Egypt was brought by the blood of a lamb. Jesus now takes this cup, and it's like he's saying, you guys know that it wasn't a little woolly lamb that saved you, right? The blood of a lamb can't save you from the wrath of God. The thing that saved you was it pointed to my blood that's going to be spilled. And Jesus says that this this cup is... Cup of the New Covenant, and he's pointing to Jeremiah 31. I do want to take a moment here and look at Jeremiah 31. A couple of verses there as I want us to see, get a sense of the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Okay, listen to the details of the new covenant. God says this, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You get this? The old covenant, the covenant that the children of Israel were given, was, was here's some rules. You have to follow these rules, and if you follow them, I'm gonna, I'll bless you. If you break them, I'm going to curse you. And now Jesus is saying there's this new covenant, and the new covenant is this. I'm not going to give you external rules in order to have a relationship with God. In fact, I'm going to write new rules in your heart so that everybody can have a relationship with God from the greatest to the least. Kind of like that because we see a preview of that with this unnamed woman. But notice what's going on here. This promise of a new covenant can only be accomplished by God because it requires having a new heart. It's not that you get new rules to follow. It's that I'm actually going to change you on the inside. You see what we're seeing, Jesus saying here, everything in Passover pointed to me. It's all accomplished through me. And in fact, this new covenant, it's all about me because I have to accomplish this. You don't bring anything to the table. If you were an Israelite in the days of Egypt, you couldn't sit there at Passover and say, you know what, I'll be fine because we're the good guys the Egyptians are the bad guys. You know what, didn't matter because when it came to God's judgment, everyone fell short of a holy God. There was no discrimination in the Passover. You couldn't sit there and say, well, I've been oppressed. God will have mercy on me. It didn't matter. You couldn't sit there and say, well, I'm a descendant of Abraham. It didn't matter. You couldn't point back to your ancestors. The only thing that would save you is you painted that blood on your doorpost. And see, this is what Jesus is saying. He's telling us, it doesn't matter what your background is, how nice you've been, what you've accomplished, that your your great-great-grandpa was a Baptist minister somewhere. It doesn't matter. The only thing that's going to save you is the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus. That's it. So he's pointing to himself. Now, now the contrast is coming here. If you're wondering where in the world the contrast is, look at me with, at verse 30, after the Passover dinner. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Notice, Peter, even in his imperfection, is a leader at this point, and he's leading the rest of the disciples into this, no, we're not going to deny you, Jesus. On your study sheet, though they say they're with Jesus to the death, the disciples will soon abandon him. Yet Jesus' promise doesn't rest in their commitment to him. You know, this is what happens when we think wrongly of God We might think God's favor is based in my ability to be committed to him. It's as though we imagine God saying, if you're really committed to me, if you do all this stuff, if you work really hard, if you prove yourself to me, then I'll save you. But this is man-made religion. Unlike man-made religion, we don't earn God's favor through our great commitment. Our stand of God rests in Jesus' commitment to us. Because notice what Jesus is doing. Saying, in a sense, on your own, you're going to abandon me but your salvation is based on my commitment to you. It's based on God's commitment to you. God set up this whole salvation story far ahead of time. I mean, Passover goes back thousands of years. God had his salvation plan before you even had a chance to earn anything. See, the contrast here is God's commitment versus our commitment. And the reality is, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus, again, We're seeing this foundation laid for the gospel. Now we come to the fourth contrast, our final contrast of the day as we finish up our text. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to him, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. Jesus comes to this place called Gethsemane. It literally means olive press. It's probably a private garden area. The Mount of Olives It's a place that Jesus would go regularly to pray. He asks his closest three disciples to stay with him. And we see in the end of verse 37, he began to feel sorrowful and troubled. And Jesus is walking along. Something comes over him. And it makes him feel like he's going to die. There's this sudden abrupt change In Jesus, what is it that he's suddenly feeling? What comes over him? Is it just that death is near and he's worried about dying? I don't think it is. Jesus has known all along the reason he came is to die for the sins of mankind. And I have trouble seeing Jesus um, facing death in a worse way than many of his disciples would. And throughout the future, who have faced death with peace and calmness. I think there's something more going on. I think we see a hint of it in what Jesus prays three times. He asks again and again, let this cup pass from me. What is the cup? Well, in ancient times, often how somebody would be executed is by drinking a cup of poison. And this wasn't like a nice peaceful way to go. Like, oh, you're going to fall asleep and then kind of fade off. No, this is like, this is going to tear you up on the inside. It's going to hurt. And so it became a metaphor, a cup of wrath. It becomes a metaphor in the Bible of God's wrath and his judgment upon people. It's something that Isaiah talks about uh, in Isaiah 51, about the nations are going to have to drink this cup of wrath. And here Jesus is faced with this. And the cup of wrath isn't just God's intense anger, it's his turning away, it's his breaking relationship with him. And here, Jesus' life that's been marked with this commitment to God and perfect communion with the Father, he now faces abandonment. It's what's going to cause him on the cross to say, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Now, Scripture here is silent exactly what's going on, so again, this is, this is my opinion. But why this great distress? Why so sudden? Why is it so strong here? Well, several scholars wonder if what's happening here as the passion begins, as Judas's betrayal is already unfolding, as men are already on their way to arrest Jesus, if God has already begun turning his back on the sun, that he's given him a preview of what this cup of wrath is going to look like. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way, paraphrased by Tim Keller. He says, The agony that Jesus experienced in the garden was caused by a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. God the Father, as it were, set the cup before him, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. He now had a near view of that furnace into which he was about to be cast. He stood and he viewed the raging flames and the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was going to suffer. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames, might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. Edwards continues on, If Christ had not fully known before, He took it and drank it. It would not have properly been his own action as a human being. But when he took that cup then, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful, and so was his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. What Edwards is saying is that God has given Jesus a preview of what this rejection is going to look like, what it's going to feel like, and Jesus had to embrace this cup while he still had a chance to walk away. That's the fill-in on your study. As Jesus is about to drink a cup of God's wrath, he's given the preview of that rejection while he still has the ability to walk away. Before his hands are in shackles, before he is arrested, before he is pinned to the cross by nails, while he still has the ability to say, nope, I'm not going to do it, he fully sees it and he says, of his own will, your will, not mine. I will drink this cup, knowing completely what's going on. And we see that progression as he prays. Father, please let this cup pass from me, but not your will, not my will, your will. And here Jesus commits to paying the greatest price while, while those he's asked to stay awake with him can't even stay awake and soon they're gonna desert him. Let me ask you, do, they, do his followers earn one bit of this? Do they have any merit going on? How hard is it to stay awake? Think about it. In a, in a crisis situation, an emergency, are you able to stay awake for 24 hours? I think a lot of us have been there, huh? When it gets hard to stay awake is when you really don't think you're in that big of a situation. And here's the contrast then is his awareness versus my awareness. Here, Jesus was very aware of what was happening, fully aware of what this cup of wrath would look like. And the disciples are completely unaware that their their master, their Messiah, their teacher is going through the greatest spiritual battle of his life. And they're too busy sleeping. What I see here, Jesus is willing to pay the price while his disciples are unwilling to even stay awake. His awareness is contrasted with their lack of awareness. He isn't dissuaded by the disciples, ignorance. And I want us to see ourselves in this too. Because you see the reality of it is just as I mentioned the Sawi people at the beginning. I said, how can they be so blind that they can't see that Judas is the bad guy? Well, the reality is in a lot of ways, I'm very ignorant myself. I tend to minimize God's greatness. I tend to minimize his holiness. I tend to overinflate my goodness and my worth. I'm an ignorant person and, and Jesus's salvation is no more threatened by my ignorance than it was by the ignorance of the disciples. One final thing here before we get to respond to God's word, I, I think it's a beautiful thing that here by drinking the cup of wrath intended for the nations, Jesus earns the authority to send good news to those nations instead. But how do we respond to God's word? Well, one final contrast would be Jesus's willingness versus my merit. Do you see it, that Jesus is willing to drink that cup of wrath when his disciples lacked any merit? It's not just Judas that lacked merit. He's about to be abandoned by everybody. Nobody measures up. They can't even stay awake for him. And nothing's changed about the gospel today. Jesus still offers salvation, and I still lack merit. It's what I want us to see today, that just as going back to Passover... You couldn't, they couldn't look at their heritage. They couldn't look at their goodness. They couldn't look at, all they had was, I'm painting this blood and trusting this. The same thing is true today. I can't look at my background. I can't look at my merit. I can't look at my deservedness. I don't impress God so much. The only thing that saves me from the wrath of God is the blood of Christ painted over me. That incredible great exchange, that incredible grace Here's the thing, I don't know the spiritual condition of each of you sitting here today, but I know that oftentimes in church there are those who come and they listen, they like to hang out, but maybe you hold back from completely trusting God. Maybe you're saying, you know what, I need to clean myself up a little bit more. And if anything, what this passion shows us, it lays the foundation to say, no, you don't bring anything to the table. You don't clean yourself up at all. You you don't deserve this. It's, it's merely holding on and trusting what Jesus did. It's all him. It's none of you. So there's not a point where I say, I'm, I'm too bad for this. And this is the funny thing is, yeah, we're, we're ignorant about how bad we really are, and yet we have this paradox of, internally, we know that we don't deserve God. And so oftentimes, we, we stand away and try to fix ourselves and try to clean ourselves up for God. And this isn't just... A salvation thing, this happens to those who trust God. So often we find ourselves then falling into an area of self-dependence. All these contrasts we looked at today, oh, how quickly I fall into them. I know that my identity is found in Christ alone, but how quickly I start finding my value in the way that the world values people rather than the way the kingdom values people. I know that I'm supposed to do God's will, but how often I I have my own plans in my head and I want God to line up with me. I know that I can't earn God's favor by my commitment, but how often I find myself living in a way where I'm going to somehow really impress God. How often I find myself and realize, man, I've been really ignorant. How, how, How can God put up with me? And yet, our passage today tells us how. And if this is an area you struggle with, this is where I would lead you is back to the garden. Back to Gethsemane. See, in the reality in our life, there's times we struggle to trust God because of our own deficiencies. And maybe we we say, man, I know there's something God wants to do. There's a step of obedience I'm supposed to take. I know God wants me to be somewhere, but I'm too afraid to do it. And fear often comes from the fact that I don't trust God. Where does that lack of trust come from? It's from me thinking, I must have not measured up to God in some way. But I bring you back here, words of Jonathan Edwards again. Did Jesus turn to his father and say, why should I, who am so great and glorious a person, why should I go plunge myself into such a dreadful, amazing torrent for people who cannot pay me back? For those who will not even stay awake with me In my hour of greatest need, why should I do this for them? But he didn't say that, did he? No, instead he loved us and he drank that cup. In that hour that the disciples couldn't stay awake, when they were about to to desert him, he still drank the cup. He did it knowing everything about them, not surprised one bit. And you know what? Christ is, God knows everything about you and he drank that cup knowing everything that you would do, every area you would fall short, every area you would mess up, that's things that you don't tell anybody and nobody really knows how messed up you are, how messed up I am. Jesus still drank that cup for us. And I pray that as we go back to the garden, we would see that incredible love towards us, not merited by me, not merited by you, the love of Jesus, it's all about him well, I'd love to pray for us and this is an area we need prayer for. So I would invite you to stand and I'd like to pray for us as we go out from here. Let's pray. God, we are again thankful for your word. Thank you, thankful for this time and also aware that yes, we we do tend to wander. We, We do tend to fall short And that's not a surprise to you. There's not one moment you look at us and say, man, I thought you'd get it together. I'm going to change my mind about you. No, you know everything. You're not surprised. And your love is so great, so deep, so wide. We can't comprehend it. But but God, I pray that we would trust it. I pray that we would trust you. In those moments we are tempted to, to despair, that we are tempted to think we don't measure up, that we would again be reminded of your incredible love for us. To again be reminded that nothing in the gospel says that we merit anything, that we deserve anything, but that it's completely your grace lavished upon us. Oh God, even believing this is not a matter of our ability to drum up emotions. It's not a, a, our ability to will ourselves to believe, but we even need your help in this belief. So God, give us belief. Work in our hearts. Remind us again and again to run to you. That This gospel is not something we ever graduate from. It's what we need daily. Every day I need the blood of Jesus over my head. Every day. Every day I rely on you, O Lord. Lord, as our congregation goes from here, I pray that you would have your hands on them as they go about their week. Wherever you take them, be with them, hold them, guide them, cause us to to glorify you in our actions. Teach us, shape us, mold us. We pray this through the spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you are dismissed.